welcome to the next edition of the VTX podcast. Here at the Veterinary Thought Exchange, we like to start by asking, what are you thinking? And this week we are, and I always say we're honoured, privileged, but we are, um, to be speaking to the amazing Ashley. And I think this conversation is so important to me for lots of reasons. And um, Ashley is a good friend of mine and has been for a long time, but it also she has spent her career working as a nurse in an emergency practice. And I think um, with the struggles that we're going through in the profession just now, chatting to her about how she has navigated um, her career and her challenges, I think is even more poignant than ever. In our clinical segment today, um, I'm afraid you're stuck with me. I'm going to be talking about some of the sort of basic approaches to the anemic patient and, and really start kick-starting uh, a series of conversations that I'm having with myself, Karen, about, an about anemia. <laughs> So, and actually, but most importantly, we're really, really grateful uh, for IDEX supporting uh, not just our podcast series, um, but also um, our anemia course. And so big shout out to them and, and, and uh, thank you so much for their, for their support. So just to introduce myself, my name is Scott. I'm one of the founders of ETX and I am a specialist in small animal internal medicine. And as always, I'm joined by my friend in life and in podcasting, Karen. Okay, so Ashley, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. We are thrilled to have you uh, here with us. Um, I wonder if it would be okay with you just to start by um, just really introducing yourself and, and telling us a little bit about your veterinary background. God, where do I start? Like <laughs> 35 years ago. <laughs> Basically, like a dinosaur. Um, right. So my name is, um, well, it's now Ashley Mullins, but in the veterinary world, you might, maybe if I'm lucky enough, if I've done it right, you might have heard of me as Ashley Wemple. Um, I trained many, many years ago in North Carolina. As you can probably tell, this accent is not native to the northeast of England, where I am now. Um, I, when I was little, I wanted to be a vet, like almost probably like 90% of kids when they're little. And um, I went to school for that and I went to uni for that. And then while I was at uni, I worked in a ECC clinic that trained me to be an ECC nurse. And I saw all these, you know, baby vets coming through. So I worked there for years and years and I had all of these interns coming through and just, you know, starting on their path and, and getting, uh, you know, getting their feet underneath them in this profession. And I realized while I was there that that job I was doing there wasn't the stopgap to a veterinary surgeon career that I thought it was. I thought that was you know, this is something I'm going to do to get experience and make money while I get what I need to apply for vet school. But I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with, you know, helping especially younger vets develop and uh, just really the the nursing side and in particular the emergency nursing side of things. I just got really, really, um, really, really stuck into it. Uh, and so that's really all I've ever done. Um, uh, you know, if I've got a vet friend who's really desperate for help, I might go do some day practice work, but I'm really useless at it. So if you need to know anything about like wormers or like, I can't, I don't have a clue. <laughs> um, fair, yeah. yeah. So vets, you know, so vets now was, um, you know, a big step over an ocean, but being a, a dedicated emergency provider, it was just the, the right thing for me. And um, so I've been in ECC for what's it? Yeah. Over 20 years. Wow. So just a couple of things that I think just to pick up on there that I think are really important to kind of emphasize is, first of all, this the, again, coming back to this really, you know, emphasis on this very distinct difference between um, the job roles. And we've talked about that a lot and actually the, the, how important that is. And I think that you hit the nail on the head in no way is veterinary nursing in any way a stopgap to being anything other than just being a veterinary nurse because that... but you're taught that it is you know you're kind of taught that it is you always get that people are getting better but you still sometimes get especially younger nurses I think when they tell people perhaps outside of the veterinary profession what they do they're like oh so are you training to be a vet like that's the next step up you know type thing and that's I really want if there's any accomplishments you know notable accomplishments in my decades of work in this profession I hope it's to you know, kind of carve out a little piece of it for us as nurses to be 
professionals and to be peers and to be valued and recognized as such. And I think, well, I think you have achieved that. I think we, we'll, we'll probably talk about that just a, a little bit more. But before we do that, I think people, um, <laughs> people will want to, people will want <laughs> to know a little bit about how you make your way from North Carolina to <laughs> failing in Gateshead. <laughs> Not on a boat. I didn't swim or um, I wasn't held captive or like I wasn't caught in a tornado okay. and then my house just landed here. <laughs> so how did that happen then? Do you want the long version or the short version? How I think I want, I, I want people to know it involved a, a boy. A boy? <laughs> what, what really complicated story doesn't? Yes, I mean, that's true. You know, so I, uh, when I was working in the States, uh, I met a boy and um, and he was a vet. So it's like really cliche, like the vet nurse relationship thing. So if anybody's listening to this, that's like in a vet nurse relationship that's lasted like well done you because that's like the most cliche relationship partnership, isn't it? Yes. Scott's like, oh yeah, you're in one. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> well done. Scott. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, you know, he was a vet. He is a vet. Uh, I won't name names because veterinary world is very small, but he is a vet and he um, is from this country, but he was in North Carolina. And, um, you know, we, we really fell in love. We really had a good thing going and we, he had to come back here for some visa stuff and some work stuff. And we were like, you know what, let's see if you can get a job here. Let's see if Ashley can get a job here. So I did the whole work permit, the whole visa thing. And it was a massive, 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 complicated process. It was so stressful. Um, it was really hard. I got knocked back so many times. There was lots of tears involved and everything. Um, but it was, you know, oh God, it was expensive. It was just a mess. And um and then eventually I got here, you know, I got here and I did it. Um, and then we broke up. <laughs> oh, oh. So, quite quickly. <laughs> like within six months. So we, oh were, we were together. For, you know, Karen's like, what? <laughs> I didn't expect that. We were together for three years in total. And, um, and yeah, and then we got here and it's like, it was like the magic that was in, like, we just left it in America. We were just like, oh. <laughs> oh and so, and so Scott was witness to all of that. Like he had a front row seat to all of that because Scott <laughs> was my first friend. Yeah. Oh. On UK, literally my first friend. So my boyfriend was not my first friend on UK soil. Scott was my first and I, friend. Yeah. And I think, so it's funny, isn't it? I mean, it, regardless of, veterinary medicine and whatever else isn't it funny how you know life kind of works out and I think that also that you know when we're talking about this move across the ocean I think um just to add another layer to it you know it is you are moving your whole life and um, you know you moved all your animals multiple animals over like it's and I think that's a big deal that that's stressful like transporting other living beings you know um and I suppose I suppose testament to you know so many ways for kind of sticking out actually and then look how your um you know uh your life has kind of ended up now and Ashley's you know her job you know she's been promoted and she now has a husband and a child who we can see in the background playing very playing very nicely so isn't it funny how you know of course yeah. initially that was there was heartbreak involved um but how funny sort of things kind of work out it was the best thing that could have happened, honestly, looking back at it. You know, I was um, I was one of those people that when I, when I was in the States, I was quite restless. You know, I had a job doing what I loved, but there was no career progression where I was. And um, a lot of my friends were, you know, they were having babies and they were buying houses. And I just wasn't ready for that. I just wasn't. I just I thought there was more. You know, I was living in the same city that I was born in. Um, and I just thought, I'm not ready to, you know, to stop yet. And that's when, you know, my boyfriend at the time, and he we directed me to, you know, different career options. And I looked at things. And when I found, you know, oh, gosh, there's like these dedicated ECC, and I'm sure there's plenty of those in America as well. But this was just the one that fell into my lap. Um, you know, just dedicated out of hours thing with all of this opportunity to to train other people and to 
um, you know, develop my own skill set and stuff. It was just perfect. It was great. And also I'm very stubborn. So there's no way I was going home after all of that. <laughs> like no way, you know, I'd got all the way here and um, I was just determined to make it work. And so I really just dove headfirst into my career and also into single life, which was pretty brilliant because um, I hadn't really been single for very long before that. So it was really, it was hugely developmental for me. I mean, I really grew a lot. I really, I'm so happy that I did it, even though it didn't work out the way I thought it was going to when I you know, made that leap. And now, yes, I've got my amazing husband, Tom, and uh, my beautiful daughter, Rose. It's crazy. And how brave, I just think, but regardless of all that, I think, just so much bravery and someone just sort of sticking at it and and when it when it when it was still so out of your comfort zone as far as being a completely separate country but yeah no amazing how thing, things kind of work out so tell people then obviously you've taken you've you've worked in out of hours practice for all of these years um with vets now and tell us about the lofty heights that you've reached now so what is your current job i don't even know what the official title is lofty heights i like that yeah. Sometimes I mess up the official title, if I'm honest. So um, so I've recently been promoted to a new a new position. They've just um, created it, not specifically for me, but it's just a new thing they realized that they needed, um, which is a, a clinical nursing lead for my district. So I cover eight clinics um, within district one, which sounds like the Hunger Games, but is actually my job. Um, it's like the Hunger Games. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I cover eight clinics. And I'll be honest, I mean, the job has a lot of potential. Um, I'm really excited about getting stuck into it. At the minute, a lot of my hours, my work hours, really are dedicated to just supporting the teams rather than teaching them. Um, You know, as you know, um, it's quite hairy out there at the minute. So, uh you know I've done a few we've done a few webinars and I've done a few bits and bobs for people to watch in their own time but it's very important to me that I don't create more work for them you know I want people to want to learn and engage to learn and if they're literally you know on their knees because they're just barely scraping by in clinic um I want to be there to support them so um so we've recently done a few things um like almost like a little webinar like a little chat basically where me and some other members of um, the you know clinical development teams and things like that talk about uh, what we would do in certain situations in the clinics so you know what to do if two GDVs arrive which I think you were actually there for one time so um, or would we call you no you came in didn't you so yeah you know what to do if type things and so we're we're providing that kind of support now more really than clinical development. I, I hope that we can get more towards clinical development once things settle a little bit. But to be honest, I think if I went in the clinics now and I was like, do you want to know how to put in a jugular catheter? They would be like, no, like just go clean a kennel. Yeah. I, I, I So this is definitely one of the things that I wanted to, to sort of more specifically ask you about, because I think you've touched on something just really, really powerful there as far as people People yeah. do want to learn, but at the moment they just they just want to um, survive, you know. And I think that I, I yeah. think that would be accurate to the way that a lot of people are feeling. So there's two parts to that. I think first of all, regardless of the kind of the perfect storm that we are kind of talking about at the moment within clinical practice, not just within the UK. Actually, I hear that in the US things are um, pretty bad, if not worse, in, in from from a kind of staffing point of view. I think regardless of all of that, people will want to know how the heck have you <laughs> worked in out of hours practice successfully for such a long time? Like, I think people honestly would be like, I don't think there's very many of you that have that have successfully done the job you've done for a very very prolonged period of time so what's the secret to that? well I what's think the for that? me the well the secret to I think my longevity and night shifts and and ECC working in the star was um that it was just me and so I could manage my own time I didn't have any really other commitments um I was single 
So, you know, I didn't have Rose yet and I, I lived alone. So I could sleep all day if I wanted to. And I could just really um, focus on work and focus on my own self-care when I wasn't at work. Um, because I think, you know, the important thing to remember when you're doing, well, any ECC, but in particular night shifts, is that you're asking your body to do something that's inherently unnatural. And so you have to be able to have to to give a little back, you know, if you need to rest for a full day, if you need to eat a whole pizza, if you need to do, you know what I mean? Sometimes you need to, people I think are very hard on themselves. You know, they'll do a night shift, they'll sleep for two hours and they'll go, Oh, I need to go to the gym or I need to go, um, you know, do this shopping or whatever, like stay in bed and get takeaway. Like, honestly, like you're, you are asking, you are asking your body to do something that is not natural, and sometimes your body's going to want something back for that. Um, takeaway, so, a takeaway, or whatever you do to make yourself feel good. Yeah, a big bottle of yeah, wine. I love <laughs> healthy living as per Ashley. So <laughs> we know, we both know, I'm not a pillar of health, but I have managed to survive this long. So, so I'm doing something right. You're doing something right. I think that's right, and I think. Mm. But I, th- I, I genuinely think you, yeah, you're asking, you know, we've talked about that you're asking your body to do something that is just really not that natural. And I have so much respect, you know, for, for people that do work more antisocial hours. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, and as we said, actually, way back when we spoke to Simon, one of the out of hours vets from Vets Now in Kilmarnock, actually, nothing is fun at four o'clock in the morning if you're in a veterinary clinic. <laughs> But like, do you know what I mean? Like, even if that's your job, there's always a bit like, I mean, it's 4 a.m. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, there's there, no one's enjoying being there at 4 a.m. And that's not, again, that's not a criticism. That's just reality of being a human being. And I think that, you know, the owners aren't, they don't want to be there. You are feeling, yeah. And even if that is your job, there's, there is a sort of inherent kind of struggle. There's an inherent struggle with that. I think regardless of of everything you said, wine, takeaway, sleep, things are different now and things are not so, things are different. And and you have been kind of at the front line of, of witnessing that change. And there's a lot of chat on social media just now about the perfect storm of Brexit, coronavirus, 3.5 million more pets, changes in owners' expectations. What do you, from from your own kind of frontline truly frontline experience what has truly changed in the way that you and your colleagues are doing their job day to day just the sheer volume of cases that are coming in is you know there's a lot of um it feels more like treading water than like you know really getting things fully worked up or sorted um I find that you know the opportunities that we maybe had before to enjoy a case well you know even if it was four in the morning but if you had something that was really cool that somebody that you know that's really interested in surgery or internal medicine or critical case monitoring or whatever then that's you know that it's those types of cases that get people really stuck into this field you know they get that it's that it's that um it's that gambling addiction, isn't it? Like you try and you try and you try and then one lives and you're like, oh yeah, there it is, you know? <laughs> and I think we we love to get stuck into those um, types of cases. And I, th- I don't think we're getting that. I don't think we're getting that, um, you know, that emotional reward because we're, we are keeping ourselves alive and we're keeping the animals alive. And, um, but we're not, we don't always feel that we're able to do our best um for ourselves or for our patients so I don't think that we're doing anything badly but there was a time when we could feel as though we'd gone above and beyond you know we could spend time with clients and we could get that you know there's a emotional reward to be got from that as well that we're not giving you know we're not speaking to clients in the way that we once were we're telephone consults or car park consults you know we're behind visors and all of this and so it's all very disconnected. Um, and I think that that's taking a real toll because the the reason that people keep showing up, even though they're having to work at four o'clock in the morning, we're, we're losing that. We're losing, we're getting, we're losing that reward mm. that we would normally get. And do you see, I mean, I'm not, we don't expect ever anyone to have obviously the answers and it's much bigger than 
one person or one solution. But do you do you see a way through this? Do you see a light at the end of the tunnel with all of this? Yeah. So we've um, we've recently reduced our our full time hours quite significantly. So when you and I worked there, full time was about forty eight hours a week. So we're back to a, a you know a regular full time work week. Um, we've been quite accommodating with flexible working requests and you know people's needs so I think people need to be aware of what they're capable of and what they feel like they can do I would rather have somebody work part-time than either not at all or be signed off or you know whatever so I think communication is really important um, that we say what we can and what we can't do rather than just trying to to fight our way through it um you know we're communicating a lot as well with all of the partner practices we've just recently had a fantastic um turnout of uh locums come forward from partner practices that have never been to us before you know they never i've done five inductions in the last week um you know and so they've all come out and basically said the same thing that you know well we'll come do our shift we'll come do our part and if it helps keep you guys afloat then that benefits everybody because we're covering their out of hours so that's actually been quite nice because it gives us that feeling that we are all in it together and it also lets them see a bit of what we do um, and humanizes them as well. Because a lot of times when you're dealing with, you know, transfers and things like that and people are already feeling a bit bleak, it's easy to feel it's easy to feel like you're the only one that's working very hard in a building full of people who are working very hard, you know? Genuinely though, and I've I know that I felt like that before where you feel, you know, you are working extremely hard, but you feel very alone in a in a big hospital full of people. Although you are working very closely alongside people, you can still feel very isolated, um, and uh, and that feeling of kind of just out of control and slight desperation. You know all of those things, and 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 actually, so you can be very alone in a crowd of people, right? It's not that's not, yeah, and that's quite an, uh, that's not a nice feeling. I think really nice what you were saying there that kind of like just you know we still are genuinely all in this together although it doesn't you know we maybe don't always feel like that and I think it's lovely that that you've had that kind of response from your your uh, partner practices and 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 they've they've kind of come to help um and I think one of the other the other really important thing you said there is the fact that I think that you know that this people communicating look I'm not managing with this number of hours or that number of hours and I think we have to as a profession be offering people um flexibility because ultimately I think that's part of the way forward is actually these full-time contracts they're potentially a thing of the past and it's not just about having babies so this is not just oh you know you know uh, people um will have uh, have children and then have to have flexible working this is everyone like I'm not like it's a lifestyle you know yeah. way after we had our kids you know put in for flexible working because it was too much you know so and that was the solution and I think we are all human beings like you said and I think there is only so much that any human being regardless of how resilient or whatever can actually manage and if we are being just blasted with all this extra way extra stuff at the moment I think doing a bit less of it is probably <laughs> there's no shame in that is there yes. I mean that's we have to stop martyring ourselves for this cause because it's not sustainable you know we can't we can't you know there's there's always a time in this field where you're gonna give a little bit more maybe than what you expected to give. You know, you might do an overtime shift or you might stay late on a shift or you might whatever, you know, the, the shifts are unpredictable, the cases are unpredictable. And there are times when you might have to push a little bit harder, but that shouldn't be a way of life and that shouldn't be expected um, because the at the end of the day, what you find is that you, it limits the amount of time that you're able to do the job. And potentially causes detrimental harm to you as a mm -hmm. as a person. And I think that's yeah. I mean, and obviously that is, and nothing is worth that. You know, I think as much as we, no, as much as we no. love what we do, but nothing is worth that kind of level of sacrifice ultimately. Because I think we we need to, uh, you know, we need to remember that we are the most, 
you know, I can't remember Claire, Claire Griegson, who's who we've um, spoken to before, but she always says, you know, the most important relationship you have is with yourself. And we need to remember, you know, we need to always remember that. One of the other things I just wanted to to ask you about, I don't know, um, you've obviously made the decision to live and work in the UK. Good decision. Um, uh, what do you, as far as kind of a comparison of working, I mean, obviously the job that we're doing across the pond um, is, it, you know, in essence, there's a lot of similarity, I'm sure. Are there any sort of key differences in the way that we practice veterinary medicine within the UK compared to what you're used to in the States? Well, um, definitely, definitely uh, from how it was when I left, I haven't worked when I go home on holiday. I, I just I don't even enter a vet at all. <laughs> so I Fair enough. I don't even like think about any of that. Um, so I don't I can't speak for what it's like now. Um, when I left and when I got here, it was very, very different. Um, it, what? Now, I only have the experience, I suppose, of I worked at a, you know, a day practice sort of volunteering when I was a teenager and then at this ECC practice as I was training. So I don't have a lot of experience of working in the States, but um, but where I was there, it was very um, hierarchical. So you had, um, you know, you had your, your nurses, your techs, um, and they were trained in-house, but sort of in a leveled, you know, so you had your, your tops had a color. And you, if you were this color, you were brand new. And if you were this color, you could do this stuff. And if you were this color, you could do all the things. And then you had the interns, which was Dr. So-and-so and Dr. This and Dr. That. We don't call each other by our first names there. You're, you're just Dr. Whatever and wear, get to wear a white coat and everything. And then there was the senior, senior vets that you basically just didn't even talk to unless they spoke to you first. Like royalty. <laughs> They're going to listen to this and be like... <laughs> Oh, she like me. I do like you. I do. It's um, but it is. It was very much like that. And um, I trained the way that I trained is the way that I think a lot of people my age um, trained, which has changed hugely. I think probably in the U.S. and in the U.K. In that it was kind of it was really tough. You know, it was really like you don't make mistakes, and if you make mistakes, then you get in big trouble because that's how you learn not to make mistakes. Because if you make mistakes, then things die and you know, and it's very, it was very um, militant the way that I trained and I learned a lot, but it perhaps wasn't the healthiest way, you know. Um, and I think a lot of nurses my age also trained like that, where you kind of had this militant hierarchy, you know, you felt like you were in boot camp sometimes, you know, like um, <coughs> veterinary boot camp. Um, so when I got here, uh, well, anyway, when I was over there anyway, um the the doctors were doctors and they had their white coats and they told you what to do and then you did it but the nurses did you know they did the triages they did the history they did the bloods they did the ivs they did the patient care they did the, all of that and the vets wrote down what they wanted and they kind of like they were just like brains in the office with the books and they would talk about the cases and they would review things and they would study things and so it was really effective for patient care because you had the nurses dedicated to patient care and then they had this whole room full of people just thinking about how to make them better which is quite clever but um there was a definitely a separation between those people and the people that I worked with um so when I got to the UK and I worked my first night shift with the senior vet there uh and we finished the shift and I came through into the kennels and she was on her hands and knees cleaning a kennel. And I, no joke, I legitimately thought I was in trouble. I was like, oh my God, I am so sorry that you've had to do that. I know that's my job. That's well beneath you. I'm so, please get out of the kennel. Let me, please don't fire me and send me back to America. And she looked at me like I was insane. She was like, this is what we do. You know, we, you call me by my first name and we finish up all the work together. And when we're done, then we go home. And it's very much, that's what really drew me in to working here. And probably a lot of what kept me here is not only the, 
ability to to progress in my career because I saw that straight away that there was um, all of these people that were doing teaching and um, uh, conferences and lecturing and all this stuff but also that I really felt like a peer and like a professional that, that I felt very equal and I felt like I could felt like I liked that and I wanted to do that some more yeah so I don't know if that's if that has developed any more in the states or not because I you I mean you've probably been there more recently than I have in a vet in a vet, um, and I know that that's not the way it is in all you know vet clinics in the UK, but that's certainly in my experience that's what kept yeah. me here in this job is that um, working in a partnership. And I think that was probably one of the reasons I asked that question actually because that was one of the points that I thought we've always spoken about. I've, I you know I. I I love this kind of brain in a brain in a chair kind of image that you paint of of vets and and I think I am definitely you know certainly the the places that I've worked um in the UK very proud of the fact that we that relationship is very much an equal relationship and I think that uh, again coming back to the fact that we have very distinct and very important jobs um and really important actually and we've spoken about this a lot that this hierarchical structure is a lot of um is a load of crap really I think it's um and I don't want to be called doctor anything you know the only time that anyone ever calls me doctor Kilpatrick is my son's school they they that's and I'm like <laughs> I mean please don't call me Scott just please stop doing that that is really embarrassing I feel kind of embarrassed like why are you doing that? so anyway anyway good yeah okay so um so we have a few questions that we like to ask um our guests um and so i'm going to ask you if that's okay so the first one is uh what do you want to be when you grow up oh i knew you were going to ask this and i didn't plan an answer i want to be when i grow up do you know i um i devoted so much of my life to to veterinary medicine and to to really you know care care for animals and um and support the other people caring for animals that I I can't say that but I did I am very I'm I can honestly say that I love my job and that I I am I I feel like I've succeeded in what I wanted to do what I wanted to be when I grew up um the one thing that I do feel like I wish I'd known sooner was how interesting children are so I didn't have my daughter until I was, um, you know, in my mid thirties. Um, and that was fine because that's also when I met my husband, but, um, but I, you know, I've never, I've never really that interested in, you know, children or behavior or anything like that. But, um, but since having her, I just find children's minds really fascinating. And I find the kind of the, the methods used when, you know, communicating with children and the way that they think and the way that they talk. And then the way that that's applied to other kind of human behaviors and and things, I just I've I've found a new interest in that, um, and that's why a lot of my a lot of my study when I'm not doing clinical stuff for the for the district role is more non clinical study on you know the way that people learn and the way that people act, and I I really think that it's having Rose that's pointed me in that direction, so I think. I think I wouldn't I wouldn't say I'm actually fully grown up yet. So I guess <laughs> what I want to be when I grow up is maybe me, but with a little bit more knowledge about that side That's of really things. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. You can help me with um the way that my children behave. Um so <laughs> I think I did. I think I, think I did once. You, you um oh the party. Yeah, God, you did. It was That's the right. party. Thank you for that. The yeah. So just for the for the listeners' benefit, I was agonizing over whether my my oldest son was invited to a party and we got a message the night before saying drop them off at 2 30 and pick them up again at 4 30 and I was like sorry pick them do I not do I not stay and we <laughs> agonized about this I think I've told Karen about this we agonized about this because I was like oh no he's behavior's really bad and he'll do this and he'll do that and Ashley was just like just let him go to the party and if he behaves badly then that's that's is what it is and I was like okay so <laughs> we did I mean it was more it was more involved than that that was it was more detailed than that but but ultimately he went to the party and it was perfect anyway so thanks for that advice <laughs> um so 
if you were to do all of this again and you were to make that decision to go and do the nurse um position even if it was on that kind of journey to vet school um would you do that again would you do it again the way the way that you've done it so yeah i i honestly i think i would um take that same path again i can't remember as a child ever i'm one of those kids i'd never i can't remember ever wanting to do anything other than work with animals and help animals so um i think i'm lucky that i just kind of sort of like serendipitously like fell into this ECC and I wasn't I didn't even know what ECC was when I applied for the job at the place that I trained at I just knew that it was night shifts and I was at uni so I needed weekend work and night work and I'd worked in events before and I was going to go to vet school so it just made sense so um to be honest I I wonder if I hadn't done that and I'd you know either pursued you know vet school or um day practice work or something like that if I would have ended up in a different field because I don't know that day practice work would have held my attention long enough um so I don't know where I would I probably would still be something animal related um or sciencey related because that's always been how my brain works but um if I hadn't just accidentally stumbled into an ECC clinic and fallen in love with it I have no idea where I would have ended up just i also i love the the use of the word serendipitously i just felt that was very sort of just very that was very grown up um so if you you've obviously um you've you'll have met huge numbers of people across your career and actually um i'm sure many people that have inspired you i think you knowingly or not have almost certainly and certainly been an inspiration to me but certainly inspired lots of people along the way. I wondered if you could share with us who inspires you. Well, you, of course. <laughs> oh, you don't know. Oh, my God. I always get so hates this. <laughs> I mean, that's very kind. <laughs> I hate that. No, all jokes aside, I mean, you know, if it weren't for vets like like you and the other vets that were, that were there when I first started and when I first... Well, and I say vets, just people and friends like you guys, that was, you know, you were such a huge support to me um, during the, the rougher times of my of my life here. Um, and on the professional side, um, really, you know, enlightening and eye opening as to what the vet nurse relationship can be and how how close it can actually be in this kind of you can work with somebody um, who historically has held uh, uh you know a, a role above yours and still be peers and still be friends and still be colleagues that communicate together so for sure so all jokes aside yeah that's it. um i would say non-clinically um my my parents inspire me and i probably say that now because i know how hard it is to be a parent and i think i took that for granted uh my parents had me when they were really young and to give me the life that i've had Thinking about it now, you know, my mom was my mom was sixteen when I was born. My dad was eighteen, and my grandparents put a lot of time and energy into uh, my education, and and you know they they really pulled together to make sure I had everything that I needed. And I look back on that and think these children managed to. Be, I don't remember anything be, being bad about that. You know, they were children, and they literally just gave me this fantastic upbringing and and made me into the person that I am now, which I'm just so grateful for. And I just think, how did they do that? <laughs> like, how did they do that? But when you, when you, and I've, I've been lucky enough to meet your mum, but I think, you know, when you, when you say it like that, I mean, obviously she seems very motherly and grandmotherly now. Like there's no, you wouldn't think, oh, you were just 16. But when you think about it, I mean, Karen, when we were 16, I mean, what the hell were we doing? I mean, we were up to no good. But, but just, but but still... Children. Like 16, children. children. You're absolutely yeah, right. You're right. Children. Yes. It, when you, and we we still were. You know, you're, you're, you are still um, at 16 and very much a child. And even when you're 18 and you think you've nailed it, absolutely, it. you're still a child. <laughs> you know, I, I, and so I think, I think you're right for them to have given you all the opportunities that they've given you. It's so funny, actually, though, when you talk... So Ash, just to paint a picture, Ashley's dad is a very big man, like as in tall, (laughs) 
you know, very manly, beardy, like he's a all American man, you know. And I think that's so hilarious for you then to be like, you know, he was just a kid, but he was, you know, it's mad, isn't it, to to think of that now, to think of that now. Yeah, and just to think that, you know, that they were so supportive of me when I came here, and they were supportive of me um when I had the breakup and when I decided to stay I mean they weren't thrilled when I decided to stay because obviously I was upset and they were like no just come home um but then when I said like no I need to do this they were like okay you know they've just always my both of my parents they love I think they've each got like a magnet somewhere on their fridge they're not together anymore now but they both hold this uh the same kind of ideology of you know giving your kids this this courage to live their own lives and do their own thing but but also with the knowledge that they're always welcome to come home you know they don't it's not a push you out the nest type situation you can always come home but we've got your back if you want to fly to England (laughs) and and what what a great idea what a great (laughs) ideology and actually that's the way that I would hope no I mean I would be encouraging them leaving but I I think you know (laughs) like now (laughs) please don't Stay. If you really have to, then you can. Um, <laughs> Ashley, are we not looking forward to the university days so we can like go out again? Yeah, I think we are. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. So, I'm joking. I am joking, but no. Um so the um the the last question then is um and, and again this is open-ended and can be anything really, but if you were to be speaking to the folks that are listening veterinary professionals mostly um and if you had one piece of advice to give to people what would that piece of advice be uh it would be to always be kind um to others but also to yourself um I think it's it's hard to be kind to yourself as we've already said but I think as well what people don't realize and it's taken me a very long time to to understand even myself and this kind of dips into that whole you know human behavior type thing that I've become interested in that people always say like oh you know that that I that I am believe it or not you know I'm I'm very patient or very kind or very you know that I've got a um a, a good way of dealing with things say when things are stressful in clinic or whatever and I haven't always been like that. It's a it's a learned behavior. Sometimes it's not your natural response. You know, if you're in a stress situation, your natural instinct might be to be unkind. So you might actually have to make a conscious decision to be kind. But if you do, it feels good. If you know that you've paused and you've thought about what you're feeling and why you're feeling it, and then you've made a choice to be kind when it not how you felt like you wanted to be um you go away from that feeling really good about yourself and I think that that's really great advice actually and I think what's powerful about that is that I mean people are inherently kind yes but I, I think you're absolutely that you've hit the nail on the head particularly in moments of stress it's easy not to be and it's not necessarily intentional but I think it's it's about that taking a step back and making that conscious decision and I I think a lot of people will really uh, resonate with that. So thank you. Of course, anytime. It's been a pleasure. Right. So everyone, you're kind of stuck with me for this clinical segment this week, I'm afraid. Um, And I really just wanted to chat through some elements of the investigation, particularly of anemia. Um, And really the reason... Uh, for this is I think over the next few episodes we're going to delve into maybe some different um, conditions um, uh, again with the kind of overarching theme of anemia but I think it's important that we cover some of the basics and and particularly some of the things that we find challenging and maybe little mistakes that we make and not mistakes never mistakes things that we could just um, improve um, from our initial approach that actually make a huge difference to um, the, the diagnosis And the reason anemia is so important is because it's the most commonly encountered hematological abnormality that we see in veterinary practice. So being anemic, and there's lots of reasons why you can be anemic, is actually a very common thing to find on hematology. And certainly when I, you know, take advice from people, um, often 
the anemia is not the primary problem necessarily, but it's um, <clears throat> maybe something else that's detected during investigations. And then, of course, obviously, it can also be the primary problem. And I always say, let's keep things really simple. So regardless of how anemic you are, if you are anemic, okay, so your, your PCV or HCT or whatever is low, then ultimately you are either losing blood, you are destroying blood, or you're not making blood. And that goes for so many things when we kind of break it down to the really, really basics of the basics. Either the blood is being lost, the blood is being destroyed, or the blood is being uh, not produced. Um, and that helps a lot for me just to kind of think about it in those very kind of basic terms. We, One of the first things we're going to do is we're going to take blood, we're going to put it through our haematology analyzer often in-house. Uh, we may do a manual PCV in total solids. So that's obviously when we don't necessarily measure things through the, the machine, but we just do microhematocrit tubes and, and get the PCV in total solid measure, measurement that way. There are many silly things that will give us not good results from the haematology analyzer particularly. So um, you want to be taking blood for haematology. You want to be doing it rapidly, analyzing it as rapidly as possible. Making sure that when you're taking the blood sample, you're doing it atraumatically. And I think that's important. Every time you stick a needle into the wall of a, of, of a blood vessel, lots of things are being activated. The, the vessel's not meant to be punctured by a needle. And so you're, you're activating lots of things every time uh, you stick a blood vessel. So that's important that it's an atraumatic sample. And that's particularly important for things like platelets. You want to put the blood in the correct tube. And we, we kind of pattern recognize with color. And I know that seems like a really silly, simple thing to say, but it's simple thing to say, but it's really important. Um, and you also want to be careful when you're kind of dividing samples between tubes, um, because actually the correct volume is also really important as well. And you'd be surprised about how much of, a, of, of an effect some of these silly things um you know, make a difference. You can really have quite a significant effect on some of the results if you're over or underfilling, um, particularly EDTA tubes, which is the anticoagulant that we would use most commonly for, well, not most commonly, all the time for haematology. Then some of the other things I think really important to remember that um, there are differences with breed. Um, and so we've got to sometimes use reference ranges that are appropriate, not for everyone. And the best example of that is the Greyhound. So we know the Greyhound does everything differently. Almost every single reference range has to be altered for the Greyhound because they just do things in a different way. And that's fine. We don't hold it against them. So we know that Greyhounds have a naturally higher uh, PCV than many, many other breeds. Uh, they also have... Um, other things that are, uh, you know, uh, different from other breeds. So in one study, compared with non-greyhound uh, breeds, um, they uh, had higher red blood cell counts. Uh, they had more hemoglobin. Um, they had um, uh, differences in some of the white blood cells as well. So, so generally, they are a different breed, uh, and we have to to look at their reference ranges a bit different. What also I thought was interesting, and again, it's not just greyhounds. So there are other breeds that are affected by differences. And actually, the Dachshund, a very, very popular breed, also has been demonstrated to have higher than normal, in inverted commas, um, hematological parameters, particularly with, with PCV or HCT. So you will see Daxes having a higher PCV than maybe some other breeds that you'll see in practice. So I think that's and it's not just the Daxi and the Greyhound, but these are just notable examples. Although we're talking mainly about anemia and 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 um, uh, and, and that's our, our main concern, what, what also I think is important to remember is most of the time we will be measuring our haematology from an EDTA tube. So the anticoagulant in the tube will be EDTA. If you are filling your haematology tube first, which is probably in many circumstances the right thing to do because you want you don't want the blood to clot, you want to get it into the anticoagulant quickly, you have to remember that any little bit of EDTA that gets on the tip of that tube and then you go on to fill another tube with that same syringe with any degree of EDTA contamination 
you can have quite a profound effect on a number of the parameters that you might go on to measure. So contamination with EDTA, if you're filling the EDTA tube first, will decrease calcium, increase ALP, increase potassium, decrease CK and decrease magnesium to, to, to note just a, a few. So you can have, and that's particularly important for potassium. And I remember as a new graduate, rapidly diagnosing a dog with Addison's disease because of the very high potassium that I got from the sample that I'd actually taken from an EDTA tube. So I think, you know, these are really important. They, these are actually really important things to remember. Um, so EDTA is the anticoagulant of choice. Um, we don't want too much EDTA because that causes shrinkage of the red blood cells. Um, tubes that are less than half full so if you half fool the EDTA tube when it's meant to be a mil and you just put uh, half a mil in, that can reduce the PCV in some studies by 5%. Now that's quite significant, the difference between 25% or 20% or 20% at 15%. You know, that, that actually becomes quite a significant figure. Too little ultimately will mean that you probably end up with a, a, a clotted sample. One of the most important things that you can do at the time of, of, of thinking about doing haematology, yes, you're getting your sample to go through the analyzer. Always try and make a smear at the time. And it's very easy for me to sit and say this to you. And isn't it? Yeah, make a smear at the time. Look at a smear in the time. Look at a smear at the time. And of course, you're shouting back at the radio or whatever device you're listening on. But how have we got time to do that? And I totally hear you. Make them. You've, I understand you've not got time to look at them, but just make them. Even if you're going to send them to the lab, make fresh smears for them to potentially use um, as well. Um, and obviously, if you are sending uh, EDTA to the lab, you just want it to get there as quickly as possible. What we're... So we we can do a lot... Um, uh, with a blood smear and, and and that's probably quite difficult to talk about on a podcast because it's very visual as far as kind of different cells and shape changes and things. So um, we want to um, talk about a little bit about kind of um, some of the values that are generated from our analyzer and how they can help us um, a little bit to kind of pick apart, um, pick apart anemia. One of the things I did want to just mention before we got into that was um, just hemolysis. So Obviously, we can see hemolysis of red blood cells um, as a pathological process, and and that's one of the things we'll talk about in a later episode. But we can we can also cause hemolysis. We can cause uh, bursting of the red blood cells because we're using too narrow gauge a needle, excessive suction, uh, excessive agitation, storing a sample for too long, storing a sample at high temperatures. So there's lots of reasons that we can cause hemolysis in a sample and that will also have an effect on some of our results. Hemolysis will cause a falsely low um, PCV um, and, um, and, and obviously that can very much affect our, um, our diagnostic process from there. Remembering as I said, that sometimes hemolysis can be a uh, can be the, the 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 primary problem, but we don't want to be causing hemolysis in our um in our samples. So, um, as far as automated cell counts, of course, the machines we have nowadays are, are amazing, particularly the ones we have in house. No machine is perfect, um, and and machines cannot. They're there maybe one day we will be taken over by artificial intelligence actually i don't i don't know maybe we're, we're closer to that than we think but i would like to think that we are still more intelligent than machines um in many circumstances so the machine will not cope well for instance if there's clots in the sample and um, they can sometimes struggle a little bit between cells uh, based on size um uh, a good example would be if 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 a, a particular breed has very large platelets. So a notable example would be the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. The machine will not like that at all, and will sometimes pick up those platelets as red blood cells. Um, cats again are different because their um, uh, cells maybe don't vary so much in size when it comes to red blood cells. Um, so machines are brilliant, and there's been so many advances in in-house hematology that really is. Uh, you really is mind blowing, but we do have to remember um, that um, we need to be combining our thought processes with what the machine um, is uh, telling us. 
So some of the values that the machine will give you. So we talk about PCV or packed cell volume, but often what you'll see in from the machine is something called HCT. Um, and that's basically equivalent to PCV. So we can use that pretty much interchangeably uh, with PCV. It's, it's expressed as in, in a slightly different units, but ultimately um, uh, it's a value that's calculated by the analyzer and we can pretty much use that as a, an equivalent for um, uh, PCB. Um, and that is something that we um, uh, can uh, use, uh, as I said, interchangeably. But if you've ever got any doubts about the, the HCT or the PCV value that the machine is giving you, uh, then uh, the best thing to do is, is to double check sometimes with a manual PCV. And that's something that can be very, very easily looked at in-house. Just to, to finish off, a couple of the other values that the machine will give you that can be helpful. First of all, the MCV or the mean corpuscular volume, you'll see that on, on many hematology. That's looking at an average size of red blood cells, basically. So the mean corpuscular volume is ultimately looking at um, uh, the size of the red blood cells and the mean, the MCV will be high if the red blood cells are bigger and it will be low if the red blood cells are smaller. And when the red blood cells are bigger, we call that macrocytosis or macrocytic red blood cells. And when they are small, that's microcytic or, or uh, uh, microcytosis. And so that will give you an idea of red blood cell size and that's important when it comes to potentially looking at whether uh, an anemia is regenerative or not. The um, other value that you will sometimes see churned out is the MCHC, which is the mean corpuscular hemoglobin concentration. Um, and that's basically looking at the hemoglobin concentration um, in red blood cells. So that's not looking at size, but hemoglobin um, concentration. And, and, and again, that will be helpful when we're looking at um, the analyzer to guide us a little bit on whether an anemia is regenerative. What's interesting is um, if uh, the MCHC is increased, that is always an artifact. So we don't tend to worry about increases in MCHC. Um, and if the MCHC is decreased, we most commonly see that um, uh, in cases of hyperchromic anemia, which are often uh, iron deficient, um, but also in some regenerative um, anemias. So again, these are guides from the analyzer as to whether you're... Um, whether your anemia is ultimately regenerative or, or not. As far as deciding whether an anemia is regenerative or non-regenerative, the absolute gold star when it comes to doing that is the reticulocyte. And these are immature uh, red blood cells that are being released from, from the bone marrow in response to anemia. Um, and they are usually bigger and staining differently from normal uh, red blood cells. So these are really the key thing. Your machine will give you often a number for reticulocytes, um, but uh, that can also be assessed through looking at blood smear. Often they need a little bit of help staining sometimes. Uh, often uh, we have to use a bit of new methylene blue. They can be sometimes difficult to see, but certainly the machine should give you an absolute reticulocyte count. Um, and that is very much the kind of gold standard way of deciding whether um, an anemia is regenerative or not. Really important to remember that if you do if you are regenerating, you've got anemia, but you're making new red blood cells, that doesn't always happen immediately. And so you need to give time for the body to make new red blood cells. So if you have a an acute bleed or an acute hemolytic event, your body needs time um, to make new red blood cells. And that can be four to seven days for that to happen. So you know, it's important to remember that um, when assessing anemia and if in doubt, uh, potentially repeating the sample further down the line. But it's that absolute reticulocyte count that you're looking for in order to decide whether your anemia is regenerative or not. And we'll leave it there. I think that's a really critical part because actually when we start to differentiate anemia, we talked about anemia being categorized as are you losing blood? Are you not making blood? Or are you destroying your blood? One of the key things that we use to differentiate those things is going to be whether that is regenerative or not. And so next time we'll kind of delve into what 
that process looks like and how we start to pick apart um, the causes uh, for the anemias that we're faced with. So massive thank you today uh, to Ashley for chatting. I honestly just, I say this about every conversation, one of my favourite chats, just um, she is a very special human. So thank you so much to her. And also I have to say a big thank you to myself for chatting to myself for over 20 minutes about <laughs> thank you um, and so if you made it to the end thank you so much for listening to find out about more uh, about vtx and what we do head over to our website which is www.vtx-cpd.com and please do check out the show notes for a bit more information about our anemia course which is starting very soon I want to say a massive thank you to all of you for your continued support and just for listening. It really means the world to um, all of us and particularly Karen and I. If you are on social media, then please do give us a like, follow and share on our social media platforms. And we will look forward to seeing you next week. <laughs>